You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. What's up, members of the jury, and happy Freedom Friday. Today, we have an amazing policy breakdown that I am super excited to discuss and get into. Today, we are going to be discussing the read technique. And for those of you who don't know what the read technique is, the term, the read technique of interviewing and interrogation, is a registered trademark of John E. Reed and Associates. And according to the company's website, over half a million law enforcement and security professionals have attended the company's interview and interrogation training programs since they were first offered in 1974. And Today's episode, we're going to be educating the members of the jury as to what the re-technique is, why it's problematic, and how recently there have been changes in the law that will help us curve the negative effects of the re-technique, especially as it relates to juveniles and their interactions with police. To help me educate the members of the jury and break down the read technique today, I have an amazing fellow public defender, Christian. Christian, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Hi, I'm Christian Koppel. I'm a public defender in Illinois, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Christian, we really appreciate you uh, connecting with the show and uh, giving us your time today to help us with your expertise, especially as uh, you deal with juveniles as a representation. Uh, we also want to give a shout out to Christian. Him and his wife had gave birth to their uh, second child, and despite that, he is joining us today. And so we are very thankful for that. As we break down the read technique, it's important to know that there are three main components to the read technique. The three components to the read technique are a factual analysis interviewing, and interrogation. I'm going to break down each of those, and we'll hear how Christian feels those play a role in a daily basis. So the first component is a factual analysis. According to the read technique, that combines observations of the crime plus information learned about a suspect, like their social status, things like race, gender, and occupation. It also allows them to look for an opportunity to commit the crime, a suspect's demeanor, and possible motivations and connection to any physical or circumstantial evidence. The primary purpose for this is for a predetermination of probability of guilt or innocence. And so when you hear that is the component, first and foremost, Christian, what kind of red flags are going off to you? Well, there's plenty of red flags uh, when they start off by looking at the t- type of person they're dealing with. Uh, they're not often checking their, themselves at the door. They're not looking at their own biases and what they may think about the person that's in front of them. They also are looking at their behavior, trying to determine whether or not they're telling the truth by looking at how they're looking at them, how they're responding to their line of questioning. 
what their hands are doing, all sorts of vague things that are not backed up in psychology or science. In fact, to the contrary, they've done studies uh, that have proven a lot of the read technique indicators are incorrect uh, in determining whether or not a person's statements are true, if the person is uncomfortable, if the person uh, has any sort of culpability or uh, inherent guilt about them. They smell guilty or they look guilty. That's part of the problem, but we get into the nine steps of the interrogation process. Uh, I, I guess when we talk more about the three phases, the biggest problem is those nine steps. A absolutely, and we're definitely going to spend time breaking down those nine steps, And I, but I thought you hit a critical issue with this first component, and, and that's that it is really allowing officers to almost embody their implicit biases. I, I mean, when I read off those type of uh, categories, that's exactly the type of categories one thinks of as to the type of implicit biases that people have. And so for them to then almost immediately to try to utilize those, and what I thought was scary is that they're trying to have a predetermination as to the probability of guilt or innocence on the individual that, that I think that's how you are able to see these investigations that are so narrowly focused once the police think they have their guy or their gal and how then they put on blinders when I read that they're almost in, it's telling it's instructing them to do so is it not it is it's telling them <laughs> that once you flag this person now you can do all this other crazy stuff to them. Now you can really get into uh, the nonsense that the, the read technique sort of allows. And it's, it's really just a way for them. Once those blinders are on, a lot of investigators stop looking elsewhere. That The investigation uh, or the, the leads, so stop there. And you'll see that in your reports. You'll see that in... Uh, the conduct of the officers as they're conducting their investigation, as you get your discovery in the case, uh, when they zero in on your client, everything else stops. You don't see any of the other stuff. You just see, okay, they decided your client did this. They're going to go with that. Yeah. And then the um, unfortunate part about that is if and when they're wrong, because they've neglected to have that open mind and, and consider other people, by the time that they realize that their predetermination was wrong, now there's not a way to then go back and preserve potentially other important pieces of significant evidence. So I just thought that that was really interesting to to just fully digest from them that that, that was one of their uh, primary goals right off the bat was for them to make a, a probability determination. And I think I always tell this, and I, I know I've said it um, numerous times on the show, it's crazy to me how what's given to us in the Constitution, which is a presumption of innocence, is so easily stripped away by an officer's belief that they have probable cause. And and, and as a defense attorney, I can't really tell you how many times I've gone before judges in probable cause hearings who deny me my motions and then literally say, I'm sorry, but probable cause is such a low burden. But that's all it takes to strip somebody away of their presumption of innocence, because once they're in police custody and detainment and going through, like we're going to break down these nine steps, the forces of the criminal justice system, the, they swallow you whole and it's so hard to get out. 
And that's, that's really what I tell clients um, when, when I have that meeting with them. I explain to them how it, it could literally just be an officer's hunch that you have done this thing and them proceeding to kind of connect some dots arbitrarily. And that's all they need to get you in front of a judge and a judge to buy it and the charges, the proceedings to begin. And for you to be in custody. Yeah. And you see that all the time in domestic battery situations where it's just two witnesses most of the time. And it's one person's word. It's a credibility contest between who is more believable or who the police think is more believable. And those inherent biases kick in immediately where they make that judgment call and somebody goes home and somebody goes uh, in the back of a squad car to bond call and probably loses, loses their job within a few days and probably can't uh, get into their house and probably can't have other rights or things that they need to put on a defense. Yeah, and, and I mean, we've had episodes on the bail system and how that's just such an atrocity and, and it's all interrelated and connected and, and it's it's just crazy to see on paper how they're almost trained to get people in and, and through the system. So uh, I wanted to go into the second component of the re-technique, which is the behavior analysis interview. And you had kind of talked uh, about this a little bit earlier, where this is where the officers uh, are basically uh, starting with what they consider non-accusatory questions to establish what to them is a quote-unquote normal response of both verbal answers and nonverbal body language. And I- <laughs> it really purports uh, the read technique truly. Like I think they get as close to saying it without actually saying it in some of their training materials, but they're trying to turn them, these officers, into like human lie detectors with some of the, the suggestions that they should look for uh, in, in, a, in a suspect. Are they like playing with their hands? Are they not looking at you in the eyes? There's all these different things that anybody could do if they're nervous, which if you're talking to a police officer at the police station, you're probably going to be nervous. And I think one of the key components is this technique only works when there's not a lawyer around. (laughs) (laughs) It works really well when there's no representation. Yes. And and that's also one of the, I think the factors, uh, maybe one of the unwritten rules is to try to get the consent to uh, do these without a lawyer presence. Because I think when you have a lawyer present, they're not able to necessarily utilize and abuse the tricked and tricks and tactics of the read technique to get what they want. And, and you made a great point. I mean, when someone is interacting with officers, one, that in and of itself is going to be a traumatic experience most often because of the nature of the investigation. They're small, cold, no windows, rooms, multiple officers, just you. Sometimes you're handcuffed, sometimes you're not. There might be one of those double see-through glass windows that's there. And there's no appropriate way to deal with trauma or stress. And so for them to act like that's just some type of scientific training that they can provide these officers, I I think is quite ridiculous, quite frankly. Uh, Because after they establish this quote-unquote baseline, they then start to ask what they call the accusatory 
quote unquote, behavior provoking questions, and then try to gauge those verbal and nonverbal responses to the baseline to determine whether or not the individual is being truthful or deceptive. And, and, and that goes right to your statement that they're, quote unquote, being human lie detectors. And this, this kind of goes back to how well the retaking works when there's not an attorney present. But I think as we're seeing this um, ongoing distrust and sort of uh, cultural shift in a viewpoint of what the police are, what they stand for, who, what their role is in society, as we start asking these questions uh, as a society and as it's more publicized, you see it in the news, uh, I think the read technique is also working less. I don't think it's going to work as much if people are more distrusting of the police, because ultimately it relies on building a rapport. If there is no rapport to begin with, the read technique falls apart. It really does. And it's when those, it's, it's the officer that strolls up to you like a badass and then just starts trying to be buddy-buddy with you. You notice that shift in his behavior and all of a sudden you could be put on guard and then the read technique stopped right there. But it works really well on vulnerable people who are taught to trust the police or taught to the police are there and the police are there to protect them. They're there to do the good guy work, uh, find the bad guys. And that, that population specifically is younger children, younger adults. That's why they're more susceptible, I believe, to this, these sort of techniques, these, this line of questioning, this sort of process. And that's, that's why it's important, I think, to, to heavily just take a second look at how we interrogate minors, how we look at minors in the criminal justice system. And I'm kind of covering a lot of different points here, but I just, I believe that we do need to look at all of these things. We haven't even gotten to the nine steps yet. <laughs> I guess we can start there. Well, I, I think that that's also a really interesting point with regard to the rapport. And, and the first thing that came to my head was, the legitimacy of the whole good cop, bad cop thing that, you know, you always see in Hollywood, but how that, that scenario does exactly what you were just talking about. It, it establishes the ability of one of the officers to act as though he's the good cop and he's the less harsh cop. He's going to be the able to one to provide more leniency and that kind of trust building rapport is that what then allows the individual who is about to be questioned to fall right into the traps that I believe the read technique is designed to elicit and pull out of individuals, regardless of whether or not it's the actual truth or not. And there's, I, I didn't come across it, but it would definitely be some interesting research to see uh, is whether or not the read technique was actually designed and if it had any knowledge of its potential technique being used on children. Um, I'm going to post a, sh a link in the show notes because I utilized uh, the Office of Legal Research website out of Connecticut to uh, get some of my facts and, and data that I've uh, uh, talked about on the show, as well as directly from the Read Technique website, which will also be uh, attached in the show notes. Uh, but I would be interested to see if there was any research as to the negative effect that it has on children and, and juveniles as compared to it being utilized uh, on adults because that type of behavior and especially, you know, with regard to establishing a baseline 
has to be different when you're dealing with children versus adults, but I don't think the police ever take that into consideration. Well, a lot of it has to do with um, deception. There's there's deceptive, there's a deceptive nature about the read technique where you're trying to build rapport while also trying to elicit some type of confession throughout the whole process. The whole goal of going into the read technique is to get a confession. You're not trying to get more facts or get a better understanding of what really happened, which is what you're likely going to be telling as the officer, telling the uh, accused or the person who you're believing they did it. You're trying to get them to admit to what happened. Uh, Once you've sort of utilized the retechnique to get somebody to the interrogation phase, you're no longer looking for other leads or other evidence. You're just trying to get that confession. And I think in cases where there's a murder or a high-profile case, officers get excited. They, they want to find the person. They want to be that guy or that officer who, who brings this person to justice because so, this horrible, awful crime has occurred. Somebody did it. We think this person did it. We have X, Y, and Z hunches and maybe just who they are, maybe just the color of their skin or uh, their social status and where they are in society or where they are in the town that we're living in. But once they zero in on that person, it's it's go. They're just trying to get that confession. And I think that's a beautiful transition into breaking down to the members of the jury just exactly how they go about getting that confession, whether it be by coercion or just false pretenses. And that's by uh, utilizing the nine steps of the re-technique. And so step number one, according to the re-technique, is to have a positive confrontation. Uh, That's for the investigator to tell the suspect that the evidence demonstrates the person's guilt. If the person's guilt seems clear to the investigator, the statement should be unequivocal. Unequivocal. <laughs> so this positive converse, confrontation is, it's the good cop. It's, you're trying to be the good cop. You're building uh, that rapport with the person that you're interrogating. And you're trying to say like, hey, come into the station. You know, we're just trying to figure out who did this? We 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 can link you to this time, this place, and we just want to eliminate you as a suspect. Come onto the station, and we'll just talk about it. We'll work this all out. You know, they'll say something like that to the to the defendant or the future defendant, and then they're in the station. Once they're there, it's it's on to step two. Yeah, and basically, the step one is to tell the individual how guilty you think they are. Up front, uh, <laughs> which is just an interesting uh, way to go about, I think, developing what they consider a baseline, because obviously that's going to put anybody on alert for them to believe that the they're a suspect of the police, um, whether rightfully or wrongfully. But this is also a place where you see uh, the police kind of exaggerate or stretch their imagination on what the evidence is, what uh, investigations have actually occurred. They'll say, oh, we know you were there or, you know, we we have all of this stuff showing that you were here and you did this or you were talking to so-and-so or we know you were in a relationship with this person because all these other people we've talked to. It's it's really an opportunity for, I think, the most 
lying to occur. And, and that's an excellent point too, because that's obviously one of the things that I think I was almost going to overlook because I know about it, but it's not necessarily something that was overly highlighted in the research and, and especially not on the Read Techniques website. And, and that is, members of the jury, that police, during their interrogation process, especially utilizing the Read Technique, have every ability to flat out completely lie to an individual to make them think that the police have mountains of evidence and that if they don't come forward now, that they'll be locked away forever. They won't get any kind of leniency. And the type of lies and deceptions that is constitutional for officers to use well, as we will highlight here in the future, in our opinion, it causes more damage than good. It leads to sloppy and terrible, wrongful interviews and interrogations and wrongful confessions, which just leads to wrongful incarcerations. Um, and it, it, at the end of the day, it really leads to just this desire to pin the cr a crime on a person, which is what Christian was saying and, and and although that is a motivating factor it can't be the motivating factor because in these types of situations you now have even more victims than you began with and even less justice overall so it, it, it there's ways to address it and we'll get into that step number two is titled theme development. This is for the investigator presents a moral justification, aka a theme for the offense, such as placing the moral blame on someone else or outside circumstances. The investigator presents the theme in a monologue in, in a sympathetic manner. Yeah. Oh, she, she was cheating on you. Uh, with, with who? Oh, with your best friend. Oh, so is that why you you did X Y and Z. Is that why what drove you uh, to be angry? Maybe you went a little too far on this one. Maybe you just took it a little too far. And they they can like stretch this story, this narrative, on and on and on. And it's it's another opportunity again for them to potentially misstate evidence, misstate what they have. But it's also a good opportunity for them to get to storytelling. And when they do that. These investigations, these um, interrogations can last hours. They can start somewhere and then circle back. And it can be very confusing for clients or anybody being interrogated uh, as to what they said before. It's all on camera usually. It's all video taped or recorded. And they'll say one thing at the beginning. Then they'll say a completely different thing at the end because not a lot of people can keep track of, you know, 65 different facts and keep them all consistent over the course of several hours or even into like the evening after losing sleep and not eating or whatever happens during the course of the interview. When I read that, the first thing that came to my mind was the Brandon Dassey case from Making a Murderer. It's available on Netflix. That is a prime example of the read technique doing a horrible injustice to not only a juvenile, but an individual who um, suffers from intellectual developmental disabilities. But their whole, and it's so clear that their whole theme, it was putting the blame on Stephen Avery, the uncle, really just uh, 
asking the Brendan to just commit to everything because at the end of the day, it would be be able to be placed on on, on Stephen and you know at the end of their quote unquote confession, his confession, he you know he didn't even realize what he had just confessed to and asked if he could go back to math class. So it, it's just so many different examples of the issues with trying to to basically the way I interpret that is fit the narrative. And when it when it tells the investigator to do it in a monologue, well, that's the issue is that the investigator shouldn't be adding any of the facts to the interrogation. Everything should be coming out of the suspect. But because their techniques encourage the police to do all of the talking, it, to me, it really it negates a, an interrogation. It really turns into sort of a cross-examination uh where they're setting them up to either have a, an explosion or to uh, try to explain away or detract from some hypothetical they've been presented with. And usually the hypothetical is it, it can be favorable to them or it can be something that really just buries them. And they can try to say, well, it didn't happen that way or it didn't, it didn't go on like that. And I guess that can come out in the later stages too, like uh, step three. Yeah, and I, I like the comparison to a cross-examination because when we get to step four, they have that one titled Overcoming Objection. So I think that's a, that's a great linkage. Uh, but before we get to step four, let's uh, address step three, which is handling denials. And according to the technique, that's when the, the suspect asks for permission to speak at this stage, likely to deny the accusations. The investigator should discourage allowing the suspect to do so. The Reed website asserts that innocent suspects are less likely to ask for permission and more likely to, quote, promptly and unequivocally deny the accusation. The website states that, quote, it is very rare for an innocent suspect to move past this denial state. Yeah, and, and I'd like the citation on that one, uh, the study that was done or where they're sourcing that information from, because that is wildly untrue. Yeah. <laughs> and, you don't have to be a psychologist or a neurologist to know that. It surprised me that it it discourages you from having the suspect. Uh, uh, that, to me, just read completely weird. Like, if the individual is trying to deny it, the accusations, you're, you should deny them from, from doing so? Like, yeah. Now, hold on. Can I speak? Can I speak? You know, like, uh, just by saying that, just by asking permission to speak, you're automatically assume it's a, it's a, checkbox that you you're you've done this yep on to the next step which is crazy because at the same time officers always want people to you know respect them be courteous be cooperative um which is almost counterintuitive to doing so and just because someone may be trying to be respectful that that the read technique is an indication that they're not innocent again i just think that this thing is just riddled with flaw psychology um but say that that happened, we can move to step four. That would be overcoming objections. When attempts to at a denial do not succeed, a guilty suspect often makes objections to support a claim of innocence, i.e., I would never do that because I love my job. The investigator should generally accept these objections as if they were truthful rather than arguing with the suspect and use the objections to further develop the theme. And they just kind of gloss over. They, they, they don't even pay attention to your explanations. They just gloss over. They don't care. Anything you say at this stage is not being written down. It's just trying to get moved past. They're trying to get into the next step. 
And it's it's glaringly obvious that it, you know that that's another problem with this. They're not trying to say, oh, at this point, maybe we have the wrong person. Maybe this explanation makes sense. You know, at what point do they stop the interview? <laughs> Well, that also seems to be counterintuitive to the first component of the re-technique, which was to, you know, take into consideration all of a person's, you know, social status and, you know, opportunity and demeanor. And and if they're to utilize those to support it, I I just don't see how um, that's helpful in that situation. The fifth step is to... Procure and retain the suspect's attention. The investigator must procure the suspect's attention so that the suspect focuses on the investigator's theme rather than on punishment. One way the investigator can do this is to close the physical distance between himself or herself and the suspect. The investigator should also, quote, channel the theme down to the probable alternative alternative components oh this is my story i'm telling you you're not telling the story you're just getting accused of a crime it's just it's so wild how they can i guess keep this theme going and that's really why i I guess i say cross-examination because we all have our theories of the case and when we're cross-examining someone you know we don't ask any questions we don't know the answers to they're probably asking a ton but they're they're getting into this accusatory side where this is the narrative. This is what happened. And, and I think that actually leads to a, a brilliant point because you're right, especially on cross-examination. We have cross-chapter goals and themes, and, and, and we are doing that to the officers, making sure that they stay on task and, and, and not deviate from that. And it's just so interesting that you would do that in – the purposes of an interrogation, because I think one of the things that has really come out out of the research and, and investigation in, into the re-technique is that when it is the officer who is being the one to initially put facts into the scenario and use leading questions as opposed to open-ended questions, that is not the way in which to do a beneficial forensic interview because leading questions has the interviewer telling the story, whereas open-ended questions allow the individual who's being interviewed to provide the majority of the information, which is how you really get an accurate description or story that is being delivered. The sixth step is to handle the suspect's passive mood. The investigator, quote, should intensify the theme presentation and concentrate on the central reasons he or she is offering as psychological justification and continue to display an understanding in sympathetic demeanor in urging the suspect to tell the truth. It, it's just so interesting how you're, you're trying to get them to, to shut up finally about their, their version and go along with yours. And when they're quiet, now, now you got to act. Now you got to save this interrogation. So it, it's almost like it's setting itself up for this lull. This this period of time where there's the the person's either going to stop talking to them or just stop engaging with this interrogation because either they're just so perplexed as to what this theory is or they're just confused as to what exactly is going on. 
I'm realizing this is really just a playbook to emotionally abuse somebody. Yeah, I mean, if you you could do this to anybody, and it, it would just be it'd be horrible. <laughs> there's there's no there's no good way to do this to anybody. We haven't even we're we're getting down to the last three. Uh, the seventh is presenting an alternative question. The investigator should present two choices, assuming the suspect's guilt and developed as a, quote, logical extension from the theme with one alternative offering a better justification for the crime, i.e., did you plan this thing out or did it just happen on the spur of the moment? The investigator may follow the question with a supportive statement, quote, which encourages the suspect to choose the more understandable side of the alternative and, and this really honestly just is asking to to bait the suspect and, and because especially if there's only two alternatives presented and the interrogator is able to dictate all aspects of the alternatives uh, that that's really almost a lack of fairness to the individual being questioned yeah it's like uh did, did you stab this person or did you shoot this person you know it's it is Either way, something happened, something bad happened, and you did it. Another thing I, I thought was interesting about um, point six, kind of backtracking, is if they become if they cry at that point, uh, you're supposed to infer guilt. If they if they like start sobbing or weeping, you're supposed to just infer that they're guilty at this point. And that's such a horrible take because that goes back to the earlier point of like everybody is going to react to trauma and stress differently and so how they would be confident in in utilizing that one kind of marker as a end-all be-all type of factor is just like wildly inaccurate you know wildly and i love how to, to step seven you know there's always a third option and it's to say that you're not guilty <laughs> you didn't do this right well, the last two, number eight, is having the suspect orally relate various details of the offense. After the suspect accepts one side of the alternative, thus admitting guilt, of course, that would be the one they choose, the investigator should immediately respond with a statement of reinforcement acknowledging that admission. The investigator then seeks to obtain a brief oral review of the basic events before asking more detailed questions. And this is just the, okay, we've got you. Now we've got you to, we, we want you to reiterate what you just told us. What you told us, you know, not, not what we told you to tell us. Well, and it's again, like, if they utilize their techniques, because I'm assuming these aren't necessarily have to be used in sequential order, that it's almost, you, you could be utilizing some of these at, uh, simultaneously. It's like, if I'm trying to guide you to orally relate back to what I just kind of forced you to admit, and then I'm, again, making sure, not letting you deviate, uh, of course I'm going to have you be able to reiterate what I just forced you to just say. Because then if you go against it, well, now your credibility is immediately going to be attacked. Oh, you're changing your story. Why you, you, Why didn't you say that the first time? Um, and, and so it's really a, a, a baity situation that, that they're being instructed to do right there. Yeah, and it's, again, you know, these, these interrogations can last for hours. And so you've probably been tripped up a few times by the officer over the course, and they probably conditioned you at this point to say, okay, 
Oh, you're changing your story again? Oh, well, you just said this. This is all being recorded, don't you know? And you're changing your story. This is the third time you've changed your story. And so on and so forth. So when they finally lock them in and the officer's accepting what they're saying, it's it's kind of a relief to the person that's like having to go through this terrible process. No, and that's a beautiful point, actually, because, about the relief, because the the last step is then to convert the oral confession to a written confession. And you can see this time and time again. Often by this point, the individual who has been interviewed is beaten down, wear down, emotionally drained. And oftentimes they're under the guise that after they basically sign this piece of paper because they don't generally write out specifically what happened it's it's typed up for them it's written out for them and then they just sign it and oftentimes they're signing this confession written confession under the guise that they think that they're about to go home and and that they've now that they've been cooperative they're they're going to get this leniency that has probably been promised to them and it doesn't add anything to the truth no and, and it's really the it, the leniency, the, the lying, and the deception about what's going to happen to them. Um, how this is going to be some big weight off their chest, or this is going to be something that um, allows them to come forward with the truth and be good and blah blah blah. It it really is just all a farce uh, to make the person feel like this is the right decision. Well, there you have it, folks, members of the jury. Those are the that is the re-technique. Those are the three different components. Those are the mo- the nine uh, steps that they use. And in our opinion, and I think as research and science has shown, when these components and steps are used and abused, there are issues that come out of these interrogations. Uh, you know, and I think that's time to highlight some of uh, that, that criticism. You know, often a lot of criticism has made its way out into the public arena as it relates to the re-technique. And there are different calls to action to address the criticism. Two of the main criticisms that the re-technique receives is that, one, the byproduct of the re-techniques is false confession. False confessions happen by way of coercion or contamination. Uh, Christian, you know, what are the different ways that police utilize coercion or contaminations to, to get false confessions? Well, they, they use them in several ways. They'll try to get a statement that is locked in as to what they believe is the truth, and they'll have their circumstantial evidence to back that up, and they'll go to the DA or the state's attorney's office, and they'll present that. But uh, they'll also use these statements uh, to build upon this overall overarching narrative. And are we getting more into the deception now at this point or? Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 plays a key role into how then people feel coerced into, you know, engaging in these false confessions. You know, one of the things that people always say is the, the, the proponents to false confessions like no one would ever say they committed a crime if they didn't actually do it. And, you know, we've just seen the different types of metrics. And a lot of the statements and um facts that uh, the Reed, Reed and Associates have purported over the years have been disproved. They've, they've done studies and they've proven a lot of the, the tells that he, he Reed and Associates actually like would sell 
materials on. There's VHS tapes, DVDs, all sorts of materials on how to find these tells, uh, such as fidgeting and moving with your hands, et cetera, like I was saying before. But studies have actually shown that that's not true. That's that's not how to determine whether or not somebody is being forthcoming or honest. And as public defenders, we deal with just that on a regular basis. Is our client telling us the truth or are they, are they not? And you do see that different people communicate in different ways across their, their cultural differences, their, their, their gender, their, their sexual orientation, all sorts of different factors do play into how they communicate and how they, they handle different stressful situations. You know, one of the other areas of criticisms that I really want to pick your brain about is, you know, we had an opportunity to spot, talk uh, pre-show about, you, you know, the implications of the re-technique as it relates to youth and, and, and adults. And, you know, one of the criticism is that there's such a negative effect on this as it relates to youth. And in fact, that's how, and quite frankly, if, you, if you're ever familiar, if you're not, you should get familiar with the Central Park Five. The re-technique, what is utilized on all five of these uh, children, 16 and under, to falsely confess to a crime implicating one another um, just to, in hopes of getting leniency because they were at the wrong place at the wrong time, um, as well as Brendan Dassey, uh, and, and we talked about that. And so, based on your experiences, what do you think is the criticism justified as it relates to the re-technique and its use on on juveniles well here in illinois um we're very fortunate we we did pass a bill that prevents blatant outright deception um it was sb 2122 uh basically an officer can't knowingly engage in deception or lying about evidence to make unauthorized statements or, or make unauthorized statements about leniency, like we were talking before. Like you're going to get some leniency if you if you say X, Y, and Z. Everything's going to be okay. You're going to go home to your parents if you do this. Um, if those things are done now in Illinois, those tactics that we've seen in the past with the read technique, then that doesn't come in at court. Those statements are barred, and now we have this bill with teeth that prevents these interactions from happening and it does take a lot of the teeth out of the read technique in general um but these that the reason for that is there's been studies to back this up uh youths minors their their brains are not fully developed they're still developing in fact your brain's developing until you're 25 Uh, they're more likely to go along with this narrative they're more likely to feel the pressure of the officer who's interrogating them or just want to go home to get out of this situation, say whatever they can. And because of this, you do see a lot of young adults, young children spilling their guts to the police for something they may not have actually done. And luckily in the juvenile justice system, the the punishments aren't as nearly as severe as the adults. But you're still seeing these false confessions. You're still seeing and dealing with them. They're not being locked up forever, but you're still seeing that problem. Uh, in cases like murder, though, in cases of, of much more uh, or higher degree of felonies, you're also seeing this happening. And that's where it's really problematic, because that's where you're really ruining someone's life. You're really taking away a huge chunk 
of their life if they're found guilty of this kind of crime. Well, especially when, and I'm, uh, uh, you know, a, a juvenile because of the crime and then because of the confession is charged as an adult. You know, that's exactly. Yeah, and, and and so that's just a horrible situation. And so I, I think that the criticism as it relates to the re-technique is wholly justified. Um, but as you alluded to, thankfully, there are things that individuals can do to take action to fight back against the negative and adverse effects of the re-technique. Christian mentioned one as far as how different states or each state could legislatively put into place certain rules and conditions that officers aren't able to violate, which could take a lot of, away a lot of the steps of the re-technique. In California, there's a, there was an implementation uh, that now mandates any a juvenile who has a criminal interaction with a police officer that before any type of interrogation can um, occur, that juvenile has the opportunity to speak to an, a, an attorney, most likely a public defender who's on call at all times of the day to advise that individual whether or not they should speak to the officer and if their presence is needed at the scene. I think one of the things that Christian and I could have mentioned is that first and foremost, the best way to avoid falling subject to the re-technique is to not talk to the police. Don't talk <laughs> Don't to Don't talk to the police. <laughs> Don't say anything. Utilize your rights to say no. Um, assert the fifth, <laughs> yes. And, and, and you won't be able to get into it. So that's first and foremost. Um, if you want to talk to the police secondarily, make sure you have an attorney with you. An attorney is aware of the read techniques, how to overcome their issues and uh, confront the problems with it so that you can then at least make your case be known. Um, Christian, are there any other changes that you're aware of that you know, are out there that are helping fight against the adverse effects of the read technique? Well, I think just having more access uh, to clients, to having more access to an attorney, uh, expanding those services uh, to especially the more uh, vulnerable populations, you know, youths in this country, that's going to be helpful. That is helpful. As far as other things that are being done, Illinois did pass a series of laws that basically do, they take the teeth out of the retaining for juveniles. It's still active. It's still being used for adults. These training materials, they're out there. Uh, the local Yoko police station, they have them. They're using them when they can, if they have a high-profile case. And they're excited about it. They want to be able to use these techniques. They want to be able to use this training that they paid money to, to give to their officers. And we talk about training officers, and that's another thing that I think could help, is actually training officers to do a better job Otherwise, this technique is flawed. It's based on flawed psychology. It's not embedded in science. And if you give officers the proper tools, not just a money grab or a guy from Nebraska who, you know, interrogated somebody successfully back in the 50s, uh, you're going to see a better result. You're going to see a fairer system. Yeah, I think that's beautiful because there's definitely different interrogation techniques that are out there that are being utilized uh, across the the country because not every law enforcement department utilizes the re-techniques. And you also see different and various forms of interrogations that are utilized 
in the UK, for example. So there are alternatives to the re-technique that could allow for a more just outcome, um, and not only for the individual being questioned, but for the case that's being investigated. Are you talking about the, the peace uh, interrogation technique? Or it's like, a, what does it stand for? Um, it's, it's like preparation, engagement, accounting, closure, uh, that's one of the things that they're using in the UK. Uh, yeah, I think I came across that relatively. I, I didn't have a whole time to dig deep into it, but I just knew that there was that, that alternative out there that was being um, promoted. So hopefully that, that could be adjusted. And one other thing I thought was, because we, t- we talked about the uh, the criticism that the retechnique gets for wrongful convictions, which is verified. Many wrongful convictions have occurred because of the retechnique, because of these oppressive and not based in science uh, techniques that they're using, these tells. Uh, But on the other side, I do think that it's going to be less effective going forward uh, as our culture shifts, as our ideas of the police shift. I think that's another reason to eliminate the read technique because it's not going to be as useful for officers. I mean, it already is inefficient on one side, but it's also any good that came from it is get is quickly being undone because people are not trusting that rapport building stage is much di- more difficult to have happen and hopefully if we can see less deception from officers in interrogations then maybe that can be another way to to resolve this issue but better investigation techniques is definitely going to need to happen i couldn't agree more and and hopefully as a result of that we will have a more just system well, Christian, we really appreciate you coming on the show and taking this matter to the box. Uh, the question that we always end the show with is asking our guest, what is the significance of taking matters to the box mean to you? I think it's important to, in our in our line of work, we're defending people who are not wealthy. We're defending people who come from lower socioeconomic classes and their voices need to be heard. Their truths need to be heard. When your client is innocent and they, they're being charged with something that they absolutely did not do, that is the most, I guess, rewarding experience you can have as a public defender because you get to go out there, you get to defend that person. It's also the most stressful situation you can have as a public defender because you know your client didn't do it and you have to defend them and you get to be their voice. You get to be their representation. and. That is why I love my job. That is why I love taking things to the box. Yes, sir. Well, thank you. That was, oh, man, we love it. And we appreciate you uh, bringing this matter to the box for our members of the jury. Uh, Hopefully they feel educated as to the re-technique and are ready to go out there and take actions to hopefully put an end to the atrocities that it's creating. Uh, uh, Christian, uh, thank you again so much for uh, coming on the show today. jury that's our show and i rest my case be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box if you're a fan of the show go ahead and subscribe you can also find us on social media at members of the jury if you want to be a guest or have any feedback be sure to email us at lhursty at members of the jury
information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.